Hello and welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop Podcast, your one stop for co-op news and reviews. This week, Jason Perez is here to entertain you with some more Shelf Stories. Yo, my peoples, what's up? Welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop Podcast. I'm your host, Jason. Thank you so much for stopping by for this double feature. Uh, so in the back half of the episode, uh, I am going to play my conversation with Eric from the Board Game Dojo podcast, one of my favorite recent board game podcasts founded last year. Uh, Eric and I are very simpatico in terms of the way we think about board games, uh, what we bring in terms of psychology and history, above the table perspective. So uh, we get into a little bit of his background as a Japanese uh, gamer or a person who's living in Japan, familiar with the board game scene, talk a little bit about that. And we get into the psychology and human dynamics of the alpha gamer. We're co-op fans. We've dealt with it at our tables. So I wanted to get into the nuts and bolts, uh, how it works, uh, what the psychology is, what we can do about it, etc. It's a great conversation. I hope you stay tuned for that. And also check out the Board Game Dojo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. But before I get into all that, I am jumping in to share about a game that I've been playing lately. On the One Stop Co-op Shop, we get a ton of review copies. We have uh, different systems for getting them in front of the camera or talking about them. Uh, very rarely does one just leap out and say, okay, I must talk about this one. Uh, this one has it. I've been playing, and I've been playing the tar out of it, and I anticipate uh, continuing to play it uh, throughout the course of the year. It is Genshin Tarot, the fan-made Genshin Impact board game. It was designed by Min Yang Lu and published by Brother Main Games. Uh, it is the officially unofficial uh, version of Genshin Impact, the video game. Story is that this is a fan who loves the world, uh, loves the game. I would love the game if I was uh, you had more time uh, for a big old uh, JRPG uh, with constantly rolling content. It has that freemium model, uh, depending on where you uh, play it. Uh, where you know you can buy more characters and open up worlds and participate in seasons and everything. Uh, so uh, it's a huge, huge world and a very, very popular video game. So this game, Genshin Tarot, uh, is the distilled version of that in a card battler in the mold of a Centros of the Multiverse or a Marvel Champions, but doing some very, very different things to get there. Genshin Tarot is a one to four player pure cooperative game. You can also play it as a pure solo or go up to four players. Uh, the concept is that you are playing a team of heroes. Like I said, there's over 20 in the base game, uh, more in the expansion. And as the product gets popular, hopefully word of mouth spreads around, they'll make more characters and content for it. At the beginning of the game, you're going to pick four different characters and you have plenty to choose from. Uh, you're going to take their cards, shuffle them together and make a distilled 20 card deck with the powers from all four characters. On every turn, you are going to draw to a hand of five cards three of which you can play for the actions. That's the very, very basics. And then within that, there's all sorts of ways to mess with the action economy, cards that cost no actions or two actions if they're a fairly powerful effect, uh, other cards that you can acquire that can get you more actions, uh, more bonus damage. And also, every character has an ultimate skill. So you're going to have four ultimate skills in front of you, and you can pick as you build up your energy which ultimate skill you want to fire off, and that exists independent of your card play. Combo, combo, combo. I won't describe all the combos here. Rest assured, if you're familiar with the Genshin Impact video game, uh, they all key off of the elements, pyro, cryo, etc. If you're not familiar with the video game, just know that there is a ton of little interactable elements, just like a lot of these card battling games that I'm describing. 
every player is going to start off with a face down row of tarot card size enemies, uh, kind of mook style. You know, you're mowing through them with your basic deck. Uh, and as you defeat the enemies uh, in your personal area, you're going to get money. And with that money, you're going to improve your card. So uh, you have a basic version of the card, and then you'll have upgrades kind of on your personal area. So then you pay the money, you trade out that basic card, and you get the improved version. So your deck will evolve over the course of the game. Every player is going to have their own row of mooks. Uh, so if you're playing cooperatively, there is a simultaneous aspect where uh, everyone's playing their cards and trying to beat their own uh, situations. But then every once in a while, someone will call for help. They need something from somebody else and somebody can jump in and say, OK, I can give you that card. Uh, it's quite uh, chaotic uh, in terms of coordinating all that. But when you can put yourself on that string, everybody's working together, uh, you get that nice uh, simultaneous cooperative experience. After you beat your eight personal little enemies, you're going to have a row of three mini bosses, and then uh, you'll be able to open up that big boss, which is going to represent the culmination, and beating that boss is how you win the game. So let's break this one down once I've co-opted up style with five key points you need to know about this one. Number five is a mix is the price. So we don't normally talk about price here in the one-step co-op shop. However, we're comparing it to Sentinels and Marvel Champions and Aeon's End. So it stands out that Genshin Taro has just as much physical componentry in terms of cards and tokens, uh, as well as gameplay as those other products for a much higher price. Now, that's a mix and not a con because there are some mitigating circumstances. Uh, number one is a small publisher. They're not publishing at scale. So that's uh, going to drive the price down a lot when you can make a lot of it. It's Fantasy Flight in Marvel Champions case. <laughs> they can print it uh, pretty cheaply. Uh, number two, the art budget. Uh, this was a labor of love. Uh, so many artists contributed and they're all named uh, and shouted out. So because of the huge art budget, that drives up the price as well. It's kind of like buying Union if you're an American. Uh, if you buy from a Union shop, then you know that uh, the workers are getting paid a little bit more and you're going to pay a little bit more out of your own pocket. So I don't mind that uh, personally. I do that uh, in my uh, personal life, so I'm used to it. And uh, I see it. There's a lot of products where, where I don't see the extra cost, and I'm wondering why I'm paying 20 extra bucks or 30 extra bucks, whatever it is. Here, I see exactly where that extra cost is going, and hopefully as this game gets more distribution, there'll be more uh, production of scale, and they'll drive the price down. My number four is a mix, uh, kind of leaning towards con, unfortunately, on the bosses. They work fine. Uh, you get there, uh, they're varied, those three bosses that are included in the basic game, uh, and you'll have different experiences. You'll uh, it'll challenge you in different ways, so that's fine. Um, there's not enough of them. Uh, I think it needs a lot more in terms of, you know, varying up the experience. And also, you don't feel them at all uh, until they reveal at the very end of the game, 11, 12 rounds in, you've already gotten your combos going. You're dealing with those mini bosses, which is fine. But if I'm going to be going towards a big boss and experiencing this big story, it'd be nice to kind of feel the boss along the way in Sentinels, the boss is sitting there and it's very much the character as is at you. In this game, there is an event deck that you go through as you're going through the middle of the game. The event deck is the same for every single encounter. You get a little bit bored with seeing uh, the cards. The benefit is you can kind of plan for what the uh, event deck's going to give you. But, you know, I, I'm I'm there for a more adventurous time. Uh, that event deck got old pretty fast. I would like uh, to see the event deck be tied to the bosses a little bit better. So maybe kind of individual ones and more bosses in general. So just kind of on that enemy side. I thought that could be a little bit more work to do. 
And now we're going to do some pros. My number three is the rule set. Very easy rule set, small rule book. Uh, there isn't much in there, which is normally a flag, which means that there's not going to be uh, much uh, that is in the rule book. You have to go to the erratas or you know all these other things here. I really did not have to consult the rule book at all. In fact, I haven't really uh, picked it up uh, beyond my first couple of plays. Didn't really have to go to the boards. There are some corner cases that the book does not cover and is not covered on the uh, any anywhere uh, yet. But those are corner cases for the most part. Playing game after game after game, uh, the rules are really easy to get into. My biggest struggle in terms of the headspace of the game occurred at a higher player count. Four players is a lot going on. So I talked about corner cases. Boy, howdy. You're going to generate all sorts of corner cases there, as well as that crosstalk of the simultaneous play. I, I think if you're going to play a higher player count, a card battler, since Little's a Multiverse is going to be the one for you, I would more recommend this one at two or three. And even one works. One is a funny player count because you have to build very specifically. Make sure you have a lot of different variety in your set. Uh, you can't just kind of lean one way. But if you're able to do so, you get to know the characters a little bit, then you can build your character and beat all the bosses just fine. One more thing about the ease of play and the rule set for this one, the combos are really easy to figure out. They're all based on the elements. And the way they work is that you play your card, you apply some kind of debuff, one of six elements, and then you play a next card, a fire off an effect, then you trigger an elemental interaction and the tokens go away. You don't have a bunch of tokens, a bunch of things hanging out all over the place uh, where it takes you, you know, 15 minutes to kind of figure out what's going on, which is what happens in a lot of these card battlers. I'm thinking of Sentinels, but other uh, games are uh, can be uh, better or worse with that. This one, it leans towards the clean side for the most part because of the way the debuffs go on and off, on and off. I thought that was very, very well done. My number two, another pro is the upgrade system. I thought they did a great job balancing, uh, giving a narrow focus set of options, but not constraining choice. There's enough choice there that really feels good. So each of the four characters has two upgrade cards and two copies of each. So you're able to look at eight different choices uh, and see how you want to uh, develop a character. And you have a couple of things to think about. First of all, what kind of character do I want? Do I want to focus on ice? Do I want to focus on healing? What is needed for the uh, battle or for everything? So you have that long-term uh, decision space there. Also, you upgrade on your turn. You can trade out your regular card for your upgraded card and play the upgraded card on the same turn. So even if you're leaning one way with your build, you might need another card to answer the specific challenge of the boss. The boss has a lot of shield. The boss is immune to certain type of damage, etc. So you can turn left very quickly in this game and you still feel uh, powerful uh, and it plays towards your long-term strat as well. So balancing that short-term, long-term and the upgrading, excellently done. And that leads up to my number one, which is a massive pro. The reason I'm talking about this game here, uh, all those upgrades lead up to feeling really powerful and really varied as well. What I want out of these card battlers is to explore different ways to be a hero. Uh, do I want to be that big damage dealer? Do I want to be the healer, the guard, the risk taker, the buffer, the support character? This game accommodates all of those playstyles once again within that simple rule set. And also a simple set of characters. If you look through the basic 20, a lot of the cards are going to repeat. They do the same exact thing, but they apply a different element. So it's in the combination of those elements, how you deploy them, and also how they weave in the ultimate skills, which will take the characters in different directions as well. 
I'm about 15 plays into this one as I record this, and I'm still exploring different ways to finish the bosses, get powerful, lean into one character in one game, uh, lean away from one character into another character, another game, mix and match. Oh my goodness. I'm having such a good time with this one. So my final thoughts for Genshin Taro, excellent. Uh, this one's going to be in regular rotation, not just in my collection, but in rotation. I'm going to play a bunch of games for the channel, and I'm going to bring Genshin Taro back out like I've done with all of my favorite games, like a Sentinels or a Ghost Stories or etc. I'm not going to say that this game is better than the other card battles I mentioned, but I truly feel this one stands with it. And the reason I'm taking time in this podcast, the publisher did not ask me to do this, but I wanted to take special time in the podcast complimenting Mike's coverage on the channel to get the word out. This is a small publisher. The One Stop Co-op Shop is all about uh, giving platform voice to folks who make excellent games. And uh, I think Mike and I are in agreement uh, that Genshin Tarot is worth a look. So if you're in the market for it uh, and you like those uh, combo-licious card games where you feel like a superhero, go ahead and check out Genshin Tarot, the card game. So by way of a transition to our future conversation with Eric from the board game Dojo, I talked about the simultaneous nature of the play here in Genshin Tarot. Uh, that leaves it wide open to the phenomenon that cooperative gamers know very well, which is the alpha player. Uh, the one who knows the system, who can see what's going on on the board, say, you play this, you play this, uh, this is the best move. If you don't do this move, then you're an idiot. Uh, or maybe they may not say that, but they, maybe there's something in their tone says that. Uh, that would be what I categorize as the alpha gamer. So uh, if you're thinking about uh, this game uh, in that context, make sure your group behaves. <laughs> And in all cooperative games, if you are concerned about that issue, uh, like in a pandemic or a Burgle Brothers or games where there's a board and you know lots of people are talking, the communication and the information is open, that alpha gamer does come up. So Eric and I go through it, uh, lots of different analysis and things to do about the alpha gamer. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Yo, my peoples, what's up? Welcome to Shelf Stories, the channel that tells tales from games, books, and life. And welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast as well. I'm your host, Jason. Thank you so much for stopping by for this special crossover episode that was enabled by some friends in the One Stop Co-op Shop Discord. So I have to admit, I am not as up on the podcast game as some others. So that's why we rely on our Discord. If you want to join a wonderful community, uh, go ahead and check the show notes. Uh, the board, uh, the One Stop Co-op Shop Discord is a great community for just getting in touch with the hobby. So I got a referral for this person who is joining me on the show right here. Uh, they are from the Board Game Dojo podcast, which launched in 2021. Uh, I love when podcasts take a little bit of a different take on gaming, and this one brings in the psychology. I love it. Uh, and also some history and other uh, kind of, you know, the way that I approach things uh, in uh, board gaming content as well. So I found uh, a very uh, great match in terms of what we want to do. So I'm so happy to bring this person on the show. Uh, they have completed their master's in psychology and political science, uh, and they're just a smart person overall. Great to talk to. He is Eric Revis from the Board Game Dojo podcast. Welcome. Hey, Jason. Nice. Uh, nice. Thanks for the intro, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> and thanks to whoever referred you to me. I'm happy I've been watching so much of Shelf Stories and Shelf Help. It's really nice that I think we're both in it to kind of help make the gaming community better and we take right. different approaches to that and so i appreciate coming on and we're gonna i think we're gonna have some interesting conversations today about some really good topics absolutely so uh so we're doing a double shot 
Uh, we're going to do one for here uh, to get uh, the Board Game Dojo podcast a little bit of exposure. And I'm going to hop over to the Board Game Dojo podcast, talk about something else. Uh, yes, we need to grow this thing. This is what happened when I was growing. Like I went on other podcasts and introduced myself to the peoples. And now it's like, yes, I'm a huge influencer. No, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> but that's how it goes <laughs> in terms of like just growing your audience. So I'm very happy to you know be a part of that process. So I discovered your podcast. Uh, when we were talking about content creation and uh, you know relationships, and I ended up doing a whole personal series on parasocial relationships and the relationship of publishers and marketers uh, and all that kind of thing. We're not going to talk about that, but it just kind of opened my mind to what you're good at. So before we get into today's topic, let's just introduce the people to who you are, how you how you go about things, what your background is. Yeah, so my name is Eric, and along with my wife and another friend, we are the Board Game Dojo. And we are from Tokyo, Japan, and uh, our podcast is mostly all about uh, using science and history to learn more about board games and the people who play them. So whether that is psychology or delving into the history or a combination of the two, we'd like to kind of explore how board games got to where they are and what makes certain people like certain kinds of games versus other kinds of games, What's uh, and kind of answer some of the burning questions that are in the board game community. And then our YouTube is focused mostly on... Um, Japanese games. We want to get more exposure to that area of the world. And because I think it's really a third class of games. I think we have like Euro games sure. and we have Amerithrash, if we call it. I don't like calling it Amerithrash as much, right. but Amerithrash games. And then I think we have this kind of Japanese uh, aesthetic and Japanese uh, mechanics that kind of are in between the two that mm -hmm. aren't quite in the Euro and not quite in the Amerithrash vein. So that's what we're trying to do. So uh, we are on the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Uh, do uh, the Japanese taste encompass cooperative games? Yeah, cooperative games are actually some of the most popular ones that are that are in Japan, mostly because of the game culture. There is a lot of it is focused in on games that you can play at a board game cafe, mm -hmm. and they're just and they're starting to get more and more popular. So cooperative games are a great way that people tend to bring their friends to the cafe and then get them kind of the gateway games are mostly from Japan are actually mostly cooperative games. Like so give pandemic. us some examples that this is the one-stop co-op shop. So we need to hear about some games that maybe people haven't heard about, or maybe we have heard about, but it's like, oh, wow, that's really there. So Hanabi is one of my favorites. I don't know if that like is, because that was designed by a European designer. Uh, but yeah, so go ahead, get, uh, hit us with some knowledge about that. Uh, sure. So I think one of my favorite ones is definitely the game Ito, which is a party co-op game. Spell that, you can please? also play it competitively if you have eight people. Can you spell that? Please? But uh, I-T-O. Just Ito, got it. Yep, it means thread in Japanese. Okay. And so it has like a spider on the uh, on the cover. But uh, we actually did a review on it because for us, it's been probably the best party game in the last few years because mm -hmm. it is essentially if Wavelength met the mind. We like where... both those games. <laughs> awesome. Then you're going to love this because essentially what it is is you will pass out cards from between 1 and 99 to everybody at the table. And then you will choose as a table one of two categories. So the one category might be most popular bread at the bakery, and the other one might be most popular toy. Mm -hmm. Okay, so even though this game is just in Japanese, it's very easily translatable with Google Translate on your phone. Um, and then you have to give a kind of clue like you would in Wavelength to kind of tell everybody else at the table where between one and 99 your card is. Mm. So in round one, you only have one card. And then in round two, everybody has two cards that they have to give clues for. In round three, three cards each. And mm -hmm. if you succeed after round three, uh, then you win the game. But I have seen this game played 
basically everywhere. It's one of those, once you go to the board game cafe, some even have multiple copies because it's just perennially checked out over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's probably, I think, if you want to be in the, in the hotness of Japan. How do, you, how do you play that competitively? So if you want to do it competitively, um, you have to have eight players, like I said before. And if you want to play competitively, then you actually will give your clue between one and 99. And you need to find somebody else at the table that you think your sum between the two of you are as close to 100 as possible without going over. Mm-hmm. So then the team that the two of you that can agree like, oh, okay, mine's is definitely low. I think mine's is like a mine's is a three. You can't say your number, but okay, mine's is really low, but that person is probably really high. And then you'll form pairs around the table. And then mm-hmm. if you have like 99 or 100, then you get two points. If you are second closest, then you get one point. Whoever gets the first to five points individually wins. So you don't mm-hmm. want to be with the same person all the time either. Mm-hmm. Okay. I definitely prefer it cooperatively, but yeah, yeah. it is if you, if <laughs> oh, yeah. you prefer it competitive, there is right. a, a choice. To there do are it. some people who just swore off cooperative. But I don't understand these people, but whatever. Um, it it feels like uh, so. I mean, I've played a very limited uh, you know Japanese ex- exposure to games, but it feels like um, from what I understand, you can tell me if I'm um, off or not. There's a lot of like above the table stuff that happens in Japanese design, like you know, very stripped down, very like you know, simple components and cheap and everything. Every Japanese game that I've played is cheap. I've yet to play like a hundred dollar Japanese game. <laughs> Most of them I don't even know like, where you, you would know. find one of those. Right. Uh, so is would that be like in terms of the cooperative space? Because there's different types, right? There's like the pandemic style cooperative where it's like uh, basically a solo game, but then you kind of just fill out roles, and then you have the Hanavi types or Ito or whatever, where it's very social and you kind of like reading yes. minds. So that, I'm guessing that Japanese sensibility leans towards that latter paradigm. Definitely. And I think that kind of comes from a lot of the traditional backgrounds of where um, Japanese games have come from, like the Hanafuda style games. Uh, what is Hanafuda? Yeah, you're educating us, people. You have to fill it. You have to fill it in. Uh, Hanafuda is just like a cards that were um, actually based off of a Portuguese deck when they came. So for a while, um, there it's it's a long history of Hanafuda. So I'm trying to like think about how to boil it down a little bit. Uh, they None of this so was on the, the, the brought... people. I'm, I'm I'm attacking Eric right now. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, the Portuguese like brought um, cards to Japan of mm. like a few hundred years ago, and then there was this. Uh, a period of isolation in Japan in which nothing was allowed in and people weren't allowed out essentially. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of cut off from the rest of the world. And so part of what the government tried to do here is actually limit the amount of foreign influence on the Japanese people. So one of those things was um, cards, these Portuguese style cards. And so it was almost a cat and mouse game between, okay, these cards are now banned. So then people would go, okay, we're going to make cards that look a little bit less like the cards from before. Mm. And then they kept doing this for like 150 years until you got the fact of, I think originally it was, um, oh man, I think it was 12 suits of three cards is what the Japanese version came to be instead of three suits with 12 cards each. Okay. And those 12 suits became the months of the year. So all trying to and like so, dodge the the man. <laughs> yeah. So basically, by the end, you got these cards that look nothing like what they began for, and they could pass it off as art, mm. because like, oh, it's just it's kind of like a working calendar almost. Okay. So and then once um, the government opened back up the country and things, people started seeing these artistic cards, and uh, people from other countries started importing it back to theirs. It's actually a lot of the Japanese games are based off of Chinese fishing games. Mm-hmm. which are like this, uh, where you like take a card, uh, you'll probably know a lot like top decking, that kind of right, thing. Right, so it's yeah. a lot of mm-hmm. cards that are a lot of top decking mm-hmm. in those kind of games. And you're searching for something and you keep drawing until you make a set in front of you. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. But uh, I so think yeah. because there's so much tradition of kind of these card games in which you're kind of, you're doing these very simple mechanics and talking around the table. Uh, Mahjong is another mm-hmm. really popular one that Jap- Japan has its own version of Mahjong as well. Um, mm-hmm. Table talk is really important in building a sense of community around the table. And so I think that that's still really key in a lot of the modern Japanese game design. Excellent. So you got some uh, you got some gamer chum people look for Ito, uh, which is a very nice little, uh, you know, hotness in the in, in the Japan area, but, you know, a cooperative above the table experience uh, and, uh, you know, listen to the Board Game Dojo podcast. if you want to hear a lot more about that end of things. Uh, all right. So we have a discussion topic. And this is the reason why we came together. Our big psychology brains or even though none of us are like a, a licensed psychologist. Like none of us. Very important point. <laughs> Very important point. You know, I, you know that that's a, an actual discipline of psychology, and like I think Eric and I are both in fields that kind of borrow from that the core tenets of psychology. I'm a psychotherapist, which is a whole different skill set. And uh, tell the people where you're from in terms of that end of things. So I'm actually a teacher at this point. I finished up my master's, and then I will teach some classes in psychology, and I'm an English teacher as well. Mm-hmm. All right, great. Uh, and so we are going to take a little bit of a, a psych detour uh, and talk about a topic that is near and dear to the hearts of co-op gamers, which is the alpha gamer uh, or competitiveness in general. It doesn't have to uh, kind of fold mm-hmm. into the alpha gamer. So we're going to talk about just over competitiveness in general in games because uh, and it, how it applies in both the competitive game version. And then we'll talk about the how it like plays out in a particular way in the alpha gamer. Uh, but that is a bugaboo in games. Uh, I thought it was only a game, Eric. <laughs> why are we getting so over competitive in games isn't it just the game but can we just like sit down and have fun uh why are, why are we flipping tables why are we bossing people around why are we getting all upset i don't understand so give us some education <laughs> about uh just oh, over competitiveness so, oh, okay so i think i think an important point to actually start off with is asking a question and that is we're going into it with the assumption that it is a bugaboo right so many people in co-op games if you ask them the top three most annoying kind of things to happen at the table it's kind of Alpha gamers, quarterback. Alpha gamer, alpha gamer, alpha gamer, really. Right. That's, that's, where, that's where we're at. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They might just come up with three different words for the same thing. Right. But I think the first important question to ask ourselves, though, is whose fault is it? Mm. Is it a game design issue? Is it a person issue? Mm-hmm. Or is it a third option, which is the environment? Yes. So where would you say, Jason? What, what is What would be your just straight up opinion of it right away? Because I think this is a question that's by itself discussed a lot in the community. Right. I, okay. So I, I'm going to go with number three, so I, like a straight up number three. I think it, it definitely comes to uh, education and acculturation. So let me not take a, uh, a, there might be people who don't even know what the alpha gamer is. So let me just kind of define that very quickly. Yeah, good although point. most of us do. Uh, the alpha gamer is the person in a cooperative game who knows all the moves and they feel the need to say, <laughs> to tell people. Uh, what the optimal move is and like you should do this and there's there's better and worse forms of it i think the worst form of it is like a violation of personal space where you reach over to the other person and kind of like yank their piece uh, all over the place but you know uh, people who just kind of can't can't keep their um their ideas to themselves about what the optimal move is uh and they don't present it as an option like i'm a big fan of that i'm a big fan of like okay here are your options if someone's struggling and they're obviously struggling sure. and they ask for help but you know there are people who volunteer the options and they weren't asked And then it goes kind of on that spectrum. So that's kind of what we mean by alpha gamer. And it folds into the competitiveness aspect of gaming because it's people that hate to lose at the end of the day uh, and they can't tolerate losing. And that's a a more universal phenomenon, 
right? Uh, so, so then Eric's question is, which is a really good one, where does that come from? And I definitely think there is a large aspect of it, which is acculturated, right? Uh, there are certain mm. behaviors in games that we've come to tolerate, and there's certain behaviors in games that we don't, right? Um, so king-making in a competitive game, you know what? You're losing the game, and then you decide to use your turn to punt it and you know towards the next player there's some there's some tables that tolerate that and there's some tables where that's even expected because like well you're losing so might as well give me your stuff and yeah that's inish that's a lot of the complaints about the game inish right mm -hmm. there's a plenty of games that are like an eric lang game is like is because it's so hot you know because the, the player elimination is a lot more unforgiving in the type of games like a rising sun or a blood rage so it's like hey you're not doing anything over there and so it's like so it depends on the group and the gamer how much that's tolerated and then, mm -hmm. so it's like, and there's all, so there's all sorts of other behaviors that are kind of on the line, off the line or whatever it is. So defining those things uh, is part of what we're you know doing is like, okay, let's talk about the, if we, I mean, we're doing psychology, but we're also doing a little bit of like kind of sociology of gaming here. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think you actually bring like a, a really interesting point of kind of bringing up what these universal competitiveness things are. Because in general, we talk about two subtypes of competitive game of, of competitiveness that happen in, in a general sense. And one of them is the personal development competitiveness. And the other one is hyper competitiveness. And this is just the official psychological terms for it. That's but, what I have you like here person, for, Eric. Right, right. <laughs> it's just like the personal terms. Yeah. The personal development competitiveness is like, it's kind of competing to excel. Mm -hmm. It's marked by this focus on your own individual accomplishment and self-improvement. So if we're talking about playing a cooperative game, we're talking about, of course, I want to win, but the point of me playing this game is actually to get better. It's to get closer to winning, right? It's to learn the system in a new way so that the next time I play it, I'm in a better spot. But then you also have hyper-competitiveness or what's called a competing to win orientation, which is just that like the desire is to win or outperform others. You have to win at all costs, mm -hmm. which I think is now where we're getting to, okay, I think we definitely put the alpha gamer in this hyper-competitiveness thing. So when you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, we're not just going to talk about alpha gamers today. We're going to talk about competitiveness and over competitiveness. Yes. The hyper competitiveness is exactly what's what's going on here. Mm -hmm. So maybe for our discussion today, we don't really have to talk about uh, the, if it's a game design problem or really. Mm -hmm. But let's let's focus in on yeah. the people. And the people I, are what make it right. And Matt Leacock is famous for this. He doesn't care. Like he he pandemic is like the ultimate alpha gamer game. And I look at all the pandemic I have on my uh, and none of these. None of them solve the alpha gamer problem in the design. He will, Matt Leacock will tell you, it is not a design thing. And what I, and so we have design like discussions on the one-stop co-op shop. So this may a little bit yeah. fold in there. So it's like, okay, design that mitigates the alpha gamer. And you have all these like, you know, tools and, you know, timers and limited communication and, you know, a hold your hand of cards. And it's like, okay, you can do that if it makes your game better. But if it, if you're doing it only to mitigate the alpha gamer, then it's there's so much more of an above the table aspect to it. And, you know, and I, I kind of agree with Matt at the end of the day. It's like, I mean, there's a it's a table thing, not necessarily a design thing. So there are people who who, who can disagree. <laughs> if you disagree, go ahead and you know, have a discussion. <laughs> but that's the orientation with which we are going to approach uh, this topic. For sure. So I think there's a there's a couple of key theories as to kind of why it might be. And that's the beauty of psychology, right? And I think it's, it's kind of why people call it a soft science. So just so people know out there, like it's called a soft science because there's not a hard rule for all right. of these things. It's just like if I make two hydrogen molecules and an oxygen molecule, I'm going to get H2O every time. That's a every hard time. science, the hard rule, mm -hmm. right? Soft science is just 
delineating that like it can be changed from one environment to the other. So don't say it's a soft science because it's easy. That's like right. one of my pet peeves. I'm <laughs> yeah, sorry, yeah. I had to get in there. Yeah, yeah, no, we're, we're talking about tendencies, right? And we're, as human beings, we have tendencies. So like we, human, any, a human being can break a tendency, you know, so we can right. be talking about something and then you'll inevitably get this. There'll be a person that, or many people that make the comment, well, that isn't, that's not true for me. So then they'll adopt the whole thing. Oh, like, right. We're, we're not talking about you. <laughs> we're talking about individual people. Like we're, just, we're, we're taking that, that, uh, that, look outward at the tendency of our, like, you know, like we're herds, you know, <laughs> which way is the herd going? And, you know, you can observe these things, even if individual people can check in or out of them. Sure. So I think the first theory I want to talk about a little bit with you today, and I want to get your opinion on this, is kind of one that that um, actually looks at the alpha gamer in kind of a more sympathetic light mm -hmm. and just says they're really bad at what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And that is to be a leader. What if it's just the case that the alpha gamer at the table is a bad leader, has a bad leadership style? And and studies have kind of, the little bit of studies that have kind of looked at this in gaming and board gaming is kind of looked at it as they are really, really close to what is called an antisocial leadership style. Mm. And it's a very dominating leadership style that is negatively correlated with something that we call coalition building. Right. And coalition building is all about building up the teamwork, like building up the team and making sure that everybody is included in everything and everybody's building up their skills is the most important in a coalition building leadership style. Mm -hmm. But the antisocial leadership style is more linked to a fear of compassion or that other people are going to outperform you. Mm -hmm. And so the leadership style that what if the alpha gamer, what if actually what is happening is that they want to be a leader. But they are just so bad at it that they can't get out of their head of this person is doing better than me. And so therefore, I am acting as a bad leader because I am the leader. So therefore, I should be the best at the table and avoid inferiority. What do you think of that? What do you think of that mm -hmm. first theory? I have seen that. Uh, I have seen where people kind of want to be the the leader, the, you know, uh, and they want to have the glory, <laughs> whatever glory yeah, the game yeah. offers. Like, okay, you know, that they we need glory, glory on the table, and like, okay, I was the person that kind of enabled the glory, so that makes me feel good, feeds some psychological needs uh, inside of me. I will say that is a group. I wouldn't say that I, that explains every alpha gamer. So go ahead and mm -hmm. uh, run down a couple more theories, and then we can kind of assess all of them. All right, so the second one, and this is the one that I kind of like because I, I always enjoyed learning about humanism a little bit, is is it kind of relates back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is kind of like this, this triangle thing, and you have to succeed in the bottommost triangle in order to move up a level, and then hopefully you get all the way to the top and you receive, you uh, get to self-actualization, right? And it's so weird because when we are gaming in a community, when we're gaming at the table, we are kind of on that third rung of the triangle, which is building up that sense of community. Mm. It's a sense of belonging, right? And humans through all of the years that we have been a species have figured out that like, if you build a good community, you survive better, mm -hmm. right? So what is it that makes somebody act out in such a way that they are harming that sense of belonging, harming that sense of community mm. to themselves? Because- why? That seems to be against everything that we should be doing as humans. And the theory is, what if alpha gamers are actually just still one rung down mm -hmm. on that Maslow hierarchy of needs? What if they can't even focus on the sense of belonging because they're still living in fear? Mm -hmm. It's a fear of, as we said before, it's a fear of inferiority. It's a fear of 
losing out to somebody or losing a social status that is happening, that happens when you are the best at something. Mm -hmm. So we've actually seen that a lot of people who might be excluded in otherwise social situations have a very certain skill that might not be um, as relatable to other parts of um, life. So let's say that you're just really, really good at pandemic. Jason, mm -hmm. you're amazing at pandemic. Okay. So you, but you can't really apply those skills to other parts of your life that you're just good at pandemic. We're saying in this, in this kind of theory, right? Mm -hmm. So you're excluded out. Well, actually, the more that that is the case, the more overconfident you tend to be in your pandemic skills. So then you'll actually come to the group and you have this sense of inferiority because you've been excluded otherwise. And then you come in with this overconfidence bias and you go, okay, I am going to show people my mastery today. Mm. That is what I am coming here to do because I've been excluded. Otherwise, I am the best at pandemic, the best in the area. And these people are just learning the game. Well, I'm going to show them how to do it properly. And they will mm. learn from me. And they have the honor to learn from me. Mm. So that is another thing. Mm -hmm. And that was actually partly uh, actually found out in South Korea, which was oh. interesting. Oh, uh, Okay, so we can take a step back. Um, the waters are rising, people. So if you don't want the, the deep side check, we're uh, <laughs> just giving you a flag. Uh, and you know th this is what the pod is going to be. Uh, anyway, so let's step back and try to ex explain the hierarchy of needs. And there is a criticism that the hierarchy of needs is a very Western dominated paradigm, you know, because it, yes. it kind of like goes towards the individual at the top and not every culture feels that way. So I'm just kind of like anti-collectivist pretty much. Yep. So I'm going to put that out there just for now, but we are in a Western paradigm. So I think it does apply in terms of the way we're culturated. So we'll just go with it just with a, with a little bit of an asterisk. That's so a good point. Thank at you. The very, so then you have this pyramid of five levels at the very basic bottom of the pyramid is your basic needs, your food, your shelter. And that's like, as you as a human, so then in gaming, we believe in a magic circle where like the normal rules of life are suspended and like it's a bunch of other rules of life. But when human beings go to one from one to another, we carry our own <laughs> baggage. We carry our own ways of seeing things. So we can translate how the hierarchy of needs would work in terms of a uh, magic circle, right? So then level one, basic needs. What is the basic need of a, of a game? You, you need the game. You need all the pieces to the game. <laughs> you need the table and the chairs and all kind of stuff. Like you need all that setups. So like that's like the basic basics of what's going on. Uh, hopefully that's all like worked out <laughs> before you go set out to play. And then you have a second level, which is safety, right? Uh, so safety would be kind of the social contract of a game. So like it's, it, you can't, sometimes people take for granted and there's a lot of like taking for granted, which is causing part of the problem, but Breaking it down, you can't have a game unless everybody knows the rules, plays within the rules, that's part of the social contract. And if people aren't playing from the rules, then that kind of triggers that sense of lack of safety and fear. It's like anything can happen. And anything can happen in the bad ways. I don't have fun and I waste my time and all that other stuff, right? So then you know the rules of the game. You are um, simpatico when it comes to like behavior. So, you know, like, when you have a competitive game, it's like, okay, I'm going to play to win. You're going to play to win. We're you know, not going to king make now. Like there's all these social rules that come in uh, when it comes to like organizing that stuff. And that's like the second level. And then what we're talking about is that third level is like actually, like especially at a cooperative game, coming together as a community. So like the social contract isn't about coming together. It's about kind of making the rules so that we don't hurt each other. And then, then we form that community. And then we kind of like achieve more individual. I had fun. I had mastery, et cetera. So under that paradigm, when you said before, like, okay, 
a well-functioning game is like on that community level up. And then when that breaks down, now we're starting to engage in violations of the social contract of a table. Is that is that a good way to kind of think about it? That's a great way to think about it. Absolutely. At least for one person at the table. Right. Right. And so like an alpha gamer, they might be um, doing a couple of things for that are like either either they've defined what community is like with them at the top that brings that leadership thing is like they define community poorly, which in a, in a way violates a social contract. So like, okay, they think they're a leader. They're not really a leader. Their, their leadership is not welcome <laughs> as much as they would think they are. So that, that happens. That's one thing. Or like that in terms of that kind of like personal mastery achievement, you know, it's like, okay, I want to achieve personal mastery, which is kind of like higher up on the, on the, um, the pyramid, but, they have not everybody there is there for that reason. So you imagine a, a scenario like, okay, let's say you're playing a pandemic type game. And I mean, I have like a Burger Brothers or playing those games. So like there might be people there that are like there to learn, there to have fun, there to experience the game, especially if it's like a legacy game, right? So if it's like a legacy game, then it's like, we're going to experience a story. We're going to experience adventure. And, oh, if we lose, we lose, whatever, whatever. And then you have that one person that's there that's trying to like achieve that mastery. And that hasn't been kind of like worked out on the table because who engages the meta thinking before we play our games? It was like, okay, put the tape, put the call up, let's play a game <laughs> and, you know, right. and let it happen. So this is, that's where it's like the bigger problem is where there's not a lot of familiarity within the group. So yeah, you can have those kind of misaligned um, goals. And, and when you have misaligned goals, then you start to kind of engage in that violation of that deeper rules of, you know, violating social contract stuff, which makes the table feel a little bit more unsafe. Yeah. And, um, you actually, I was going to bring up the magic circle later on, but like, since we, we were talking yeah. about it a little bit, we'll, yeah. we'll bring it up now is, uh, when it's one of those things that you can kind of combat the alpha gamer thing is defining that magic circle when somebody tries to enter it. Right. So I thought you gave a, a great description of what the, the magic circle is and it can be really difficult. So let's let's say that we were going to do a game of Pandemic and we're all new players to Pandemic or maybe one person has played one time or whatever. And then you, when somebody comes to the table and you need to be upfront with what you want in the goal of that game, right? Is saying, okay, we are all new to this game. We are okay with making mistakes in this game. We are okay with not winning this game. Of course, we're going to play to win, of course, because it's a game. But if we lose, we are okay with that right? because we're learning the game. And mm -hmm. being upfront with that is so important. And if they say like, hmm, but I really want to win. Okay, then don't play with us. And right, right. it can be really, really hard to do that. But one of the most important books I read in the last year is How to Deal with Emotionally Immature Parents, mm. which, I mean, take from that what you will. But um, <laughs> I'm sure it was purely professional research, purely. Uh, yeah, it was It was free on Audible. Um, but one of the most important things to understand is that you have to trade in this short-term uncomfortableness with the long-term benefit for everybody. Because it's not only going to affect the people at the table at the moment who are not going to be happy with playing with an alpha gamer. It's also probably miserable for the alpha gamer mm -hmm. who probably doesn't want to play this game that they really know like the back of their hand with people who aren't experienced if they solely want to be winning at all costs. Mm -hmm. Right? To them, that's not fun. Right. But and to everybody else, it's not fun. So taking that five seconds and being like, you know what? I'm going to save the next two hours of both of our happiness by making it a bit uncomfortable for like 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And that's easier said than done. I completely understand that I can get social anxiety in those kind of situations. Like I'm not very good at it. 
Right. You know, there's all sorts of things. Like I want to just, I would just want to sit there and game. Like I don't want to have to, you know, rewrite the social rules. Like it's so much easier to be like, okay, everybody assuming that everybody kind of generally knows the social rules and that the, the game itself will contain whatever is happening, but that doesn't always happen. So no, absolutely. And so it's like, okay, there are, there, there's uh, plenty of people out there that come at it from different needs, different perspectives. They want different things out of a game. Uh, and especially this one, I think at the end of the day, when it comes to over competitiveness and alpha gaming, whatever it is, I think that in the social contract, we need to deal with losing and we need to kind of agree on, you know, how okay we are with losing. And there is a, because I, I made a joke, right? It's just a game, right? That, that's what the, that's what just a game means. It means that it's okay to lose in order, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and that the, the goals are other goals, like, you know, sociality, having fun, et cetera. Uh, so, and you've talked about this, uh, you know, in other podcasts, the loss aversion. Like we get, like human beings, that's probably one of our biggest drives. It's like, you know, the, to avoid the losing and to avoid that kind of thing. And it, we we shouldn't take for granted that everybody knows it's just the game because losing in general, even whether it's losing, you know, your car keys or losing your, you know, depending on everybody has different stakes when it comes and different levels of um, feeling when it comes to like, okay, you know, what I lose and how I react to losing. And there are some folks out there that get a lot out of this gaming hobby and get a lot out of gaming and like losing for them is painful. So, I think we would do well to be like, okay, kind of understand that and not just take for granted, like, okay, people are going to have the same fun that I am. It's like, okay, well, there might be people out there that like take losing whatever, because like, you know, they get a lot out of gaming. They get out, they get that sense of mastery. They get that sense of leadership. They get all sorts of other things. And to be able to come into that magic circle, be willing, as hard as it is, to address the social contract at lower level and say, in this social contract, X, Y, Z, either that this is a game where we tolerate losing and, you know, don't, or this could be a magic circle where like, no, we don't tolerate losing. And, you know, if, if someone finds a move that is better, you will take that advice. <laughs> like that's a, so yeah. that's a, that's a thing that people can do too. But just the, the, the issue is just finding that thing as opposed to assuming that, you know, every gamer kind of approaches it in similar ways. Okay. Cause your loss aversion thing, like I always do this with my with my students to kind of like bring home this point. So I have two dice here. Oh, because my blur is not, but they're just, this is, I have two green dice here. Number one to six. There's nothing special about these dice. I'm not going to perform a magic trick or anything, right? Sure. However, if you pick this dice, I will give you money. Okay, I'll give you money for the green dice. That's what the green dice are, right? I'll give you money. On this one, if you roll a one, two, three, four, five, six, I don't care what it is, I'll give you $2,000. Mm. If you roll this one on the left, one to five, I will give you $3,000. But if you roll a six, I give you nothing. Mm -hmm. So now, which one do you choose? And just keep it in your head there. Do you choose the right one? Definitely $2,000 or chance of $3,000 or nothing. Now I have two red dice, which means I'm taking your money, mm. right? On this right side dice, it's going to be very similar to that first one where one, two, three, four, five, six, I'm taking $2,000 from you. Mm. This one though, okay, I am either going to take $3,000 from you for one to five, or I'm going to take nothing. Mm -hmm. You get to keep all of your money if you roll a six on this one. Mm -hmm. So now which one do you choose? The consistent one or the chance at losing nothing? Mm -hmm. So Jason, which one did you pick? For the green, uh, I picked- Yeah, for uh, green? Yeah. Well, how is it? Um, wait, okay, what was my choice again? Good. I have to choose okay. like either the green situation or yep, the blue. Either right, okay, so for green, do you want the consistent? Definitely, you're gonna get $2,000. Or 
You have a chance at $3,000, but you also have a chance at zero. I'm probably going to get the 2000 like the steady 2000 Give me that one. 2000 Okay. Sounds good. And for this one. Oh, I'm rolling that. I, I, want to, I want that chance of giving up nothing. You want that chance of giving up nothing? I want a chance of giving up nothing. So I don't want, okay. I don't want to, I don't want to give you any of my money. Okay. Sounds good. You chose what 84% of people chose for this one and 90% of people chose for this one, mm -hmm. but they are both exactly wrong. <laughs> exactly wrong. <laughs> exactly wrong. Because most of the time you're getting $3,000 from this left side dice. So mm -hmm. you should definitely be choosing right. this one in the odds. This one, you're going to lose $2,000. But this one, your most five, six chance you have of losing $3,000. You should be taking the surefire bet to do this one. And this was a uh, Nobel Prize winning experiment mm -hmm. that was done as prosperity theory. Mm. Right? Yeah, prosperity theory? No, not prosperity theory. That's not right. Prospect theory. There we go. This is called the prospect theory. And it's exactly what you were what you were talking about. It's like we're... Is like we have this kind of surefire way of like we don't want to lose something that we already have, and it's the endowment effect that gets into that kind of thing, and so we don't we we are really loss averse. We want the chance to lose nothing, mm -hmm. right? Because it's painful to lose things, and a lot of the time with the alpha gamer, because there are so often this person that has this what they perceive as social status, whether it's actually there or not, whether it's a new group or not, but they have this kind of self uh, acclaimed social status, they're so afraid of losing it mm. Mm -hmm. that they will do anything, even if it if it means ruining everybody else's game experience so that they don't lose that um, social status. Mm. Or whatever, like, or lose the game itself, or, or they, like there's, a, yeah. there's something at stake that is, you know, some the reason why they're at the table, they're trying to get something, and that something is at stake. And so it's like they don't want to lose it. So they, they're they willing to – though that behavior, I should say. I shouldn't say like a person. But like that behavior, it, it shows a willingness to violate some boundaries in order to avoid – really, really to avoid the pain of a loss or avoid some kind of, you know, uh, poor, poor situation. Sure. So then we're going to get to our final theory. We have a final is, theory. Okay, so we, okay, good. Wow. Yeah. So we have So we have the first one, which is just like they're actually trying. They're just really bad at what they're trying to do. That's like probably the most sympathetic view of it. The second one is just complete overconfidence. Mm. The third one doesn't make any sense when you think about it, like off the top of your head, but it's underconfidence. Mm. So studies have shown that underconfident subjects can be encouraged by the perception of group conformity and they can use this sense of group conformity and perception of group conformity to actually try to raise their own self-esteem. And so in psychology, we can kind of, whether it exists or not, they can actually convince themselves that it's happening. And this is called the false consensus effect, mm -hmm. right? It, it's this anomaly that prompts individuals to falsely assume that their decisions are in line with the majority of others. So basically mm -hmm. everybody else is okay with this happening. So it must be okay with happening, even if, you know, there might be some faces at the table of like, a, clearly people aren't enjoying it. If you actually combine this with what's called cognitive narrowing, which means like you're only paying attention to certain signs and not others, mm -hmm. <clears throat> then you actually can convince yourself that everybody is okay with this. And what can actually happen is this happens quite often with people who are starting off with a lower sense of self-esteem. Mm. And we see that with overconfidence or the perception of overconfidence, the 
body language and people that might be around the table or in a presentation at meetings and something like that. And this was part of this uh, TED talk that was really popular. That's called like power poses. Mm -hmm. If you remember those, if you remember that mm -hmm. TED talk, it was like from what, 10 years ago or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the original, the initial body language to somebody that is, um, looks overconfident, that seems to be very knowledgeable about the subject is positive. Now this can change later on, but when this happens, when an alpha gamer starts to be alpha gamer and they're starting at this underconfident level, and then they see what they perceive to be conformity around the table and it's conformity of people having confidence in them all of a sudden, it's an addictive feeling. And so they will actually use the rest of that game to try to build up their own self-esteem. So it might not have started in that hyper-competitiveness field that mm -hmm. we talked about. It actually, maybe they're not as competitive at all, but they are actually using the alpha gamer as the other part of competitiveness that we talked about, which is um, the personal development competitiveness. Mm -hmm. But they are using that instead of using the game as um, a way of just like saying, I want to build my skills. I want to build my skills with everybody else at the table. It's I want to build my social status. Mm -hmm. I want to build my self-esteem mm -hmm. in this situation. Mm -hmm. Do you buy that? What do you think? A little bit more of a bank shot <laughs> for me. Uh, so I guess like to translate that using an analogy um, and see if I understand the point. Um, so, so you're coming at a game with like a low self-esteem and that we're, you know, we're gamers. I think a lot of us understand that, right? Yeah. You know, uh, yep. there's, there's a reason why we take refuge in this hobby, you know, the, the, the freaks and geeks hobby, uh, you know, self, uh, poor self-esteem stuff. So it's like we join a game and we don't initially come at it like the leader would, the leader would like, okay, first turn, do this, this, this. Mm -hmm. uh, this isn't that. So this is more like, okay, we're coming into the game and then it's almost like kind of a, a rising tide lifts the boat type thing where it's like, okay, we're going, we're going and I want to make sure we keep going. So then, because uh, that because I'm getting more than just enjoyment of the game, I'm getting like some kind of social needs met. Like this feels really good to be successful at something. So it's like along the way, I become more alpha gamery because I don't want to lose again, lose boss aversion. I don't want to lose that sense of rising tide. We were doing so good. Right. And I felt really good about doing so good. And then this person did that thing, the boo. <laughs> and so I jump in on that kind of way. I have seen that. Uh, well, first of all, um, how did, how did I do in terms of my, uh, little like, okay, uh, starting low and then like kind of going along with the tide, I almost think of like a rising tide type thing. Is that what you're thinking? Exactly. No, yeah, and a lot of these theories are just trying to come up with where the where that starting point is, and so that rising tide analogy is perfect for the third one. Mm. Of, like, they didn't come into it thinking that they were an alpha gamer, and maybe that's why a lot of people don't consider themselves alpha gamers. But then, because of the environment we talked about at first, you were like, I think it's number three. I think it's the environment. Sure, the environment builds up their ego to the point that for the rest of the game, now they are the alpha gamer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they want to maintain that flow. Right, mm -hmm. we talk, we've, that's another psychological concept. We don't have to get into that right now, but like that flow feels good, <laughs> and we don't want to lose it. Uh, okay, so I, I mean, and there's so many people, right? And they, like we have universal people. You, you can that's the great thing about psychological theories. Like you can kind of find your group for whom that theory fits. Um, so I'm not going to say like any of these theories are like good or bad or thing. It might be the perfect theory for the perfect for for certain people. Um, I think that there's one that is missed in that little web. Uh, and, and, it, and this is honestly my experience, right? With, with okay. many, many yeah. people. Uh, and this is not just Alpha Gamer. This is also people who helpfully comment on my playthrough videos. 
right? Uh, <laughs> okay. So like, I get a rule wrong and they're like, oh, no, 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 you did this, this, this. And like, okay, timestamp, you did this wrong, et cetera. So like there's almost so many ways, things that motivate correction, you know? And I think in that person's psychology, they're genuinely trying to be helpful, right? Mm -hmm. So like that's different than being a leader. This person doesn't want to be a leader. They just want to like have in, a say into that, this particular thing. Uh, or this person doesn't want to disagree mastery. They they uh, they kind of assume that the person they're watching is the master because a lot of times, like if it's a playthrough, it'll be like an hour into the video and then they'll note, note like a, a rules correction. I'm like, you made it an hour into the video. So clearly you're getting something out of this. Uh, mm -hmm. or, or or whatever it is. And like um and like the rising tide lifts our boat or uh, lifts the boat thing. So all of those kind of um I don't know if that's like a negative motivation, but like whatever. It's it's kind of like that it's almost like the alpha gamer is not self-defining in terms of the group in those paradigms. Like, you know, they're not bought into the contract, they're but they're they're coming in from a slightly different contract. I think that a lot of quote unquote alpha gamers think they've bought into the contract, think they're being helpful. It's like, okay, I am helping you. And maybe there's a little bit of tunneling going, like you mentioned, of like they're not reading the signs that, that that help is not exactly welcome. But I think the initial motivation is I'm being helpful. You know, and I'm not sure what that is called, but it's, I, 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 I just, I honestly think that a lot of, a lot of cortical alpha gamers, they really do think that they're helping. Kind of like the backseat driver paradigm. Maybe, maybe we can call it that. Ah. Like backseat drivers think they're helping. You ask a lot of, no, go this way, not that way. It's like, oh, I know a shortcut. Go, <laughs> go that way, go, go that way. And you ask them, it's like, I'm just trying to help. And it's like, okay, thank you for trying to help, but it, you're not. So, and then, and you catch them, right? And, and, and kind of like, and they get and they can get hurt because like okay well I'm just trying to help why are you trying to go at me because I'm being helpful, and that could be its own kind of sense of hurt in itself. So I've I've seen more of that than maybe anything at the table. So maybe. then, um, so now I'm thinking. So in terms of like I I find myself often kind of sat behind the computer, kind of doing more of the research part of this kind of sure. thing. I'm very much uh upfront, like okay let's find out why it's happening, but then. Mm -hmm the whole practice side of it can right. be a little bit difficult. So how do you think we can, in the situation, what do we do to really right. solve an alpha gamer at that point? Right. And actually, I'm glad, before I answer that, I'm glad you mentioned that distinction between theory and practice. Like mine is a practice observation. I mean, it could be where people think they're being helpful, but they're actually operating from the motivation that you're discussing, right? They're actually trying to do the leader thing, or they're actually trying to do the self-empowerment thing. Uh, but they think that they're being helpful. I think there's a lot of that. So we can definitely kind of like put that there. Our answers are not like, you know, um, they're not, not mutually exclusive. No, not at all. Not at all. I think that people can think all sorts of things about the motivations and not be correct. <laughs> right. Right. Um, I'm going to be a leader. Right. Like I'm going to be a leader. And so I'm going to be helpful because leaders are supposed to be helpful. And then no, or, you know, I'm right. under confidence. So I'm going to try to build other people's confidence up by helping them out of what the best right. move is or something like that. Exactly. And I think I'm doing something when I'm actually doing something else. Got it. Um, okay. So, so now, okay. So there's, there's a bunch of, that's a bunch of theories. Um, you know, we, we are a practical podcast. Uh, we want like people, but gamers and designers to kind of figure out what, how to move forward. So your question is, what do we do about all this stuff? Exactly. Right. Um, so much of this is like, if you go back to that pyramid and table, it's like, okay, this is, 
Uh, we're, we're all trying to connect. We're all trying to play games. We're all trying to win. This is all assuming good, right? We're because mm-hmm. there's bad. Maybe there's bad versions of it. We can't do anything about that. That like you, you if it if there's like a bad version, you really want to dominate and like not the table for you. But if you're good and you want to kind of like make the game work, then I think that framework of like okay, um, we're trying to connect. We're starting to kind of violate some contract stuff. So then I think what you said before about like okay, we need to kind of readdress and clarify the contracts and not take for granted that every gamer is at the table for the same reasons, for the same motivations, doing the same thing. As easy as that would be to just assume that. And maybe it works out for you, but often it doesn't. So, you know, as much as you, you, you were very cute when you're like, oh, it provokes anxiety. And <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> that is, definitely does. <laughs> but I mean, I just, I, I feel like, because, you know, one solution is, okay, ask the game designer, okay, you know, design around this and uh, play games that design around this. But I've, you know, we've had a decade of those and like a lot of those are kludges. I just don't, I don't feel like anti-alpha gamer mechanisms often work unless they're built from the ground up, like a above the table type Hanabi or Ito or something like that. That's built in. So you can't really alpha through your way through that. Um, but for those kind of multiplayer puzzle games, which of which there are a ton, uh, you know, what do you do? And I think it just comes down to doing something we don't want to do, which is stepping back and addressing the social contract of why people are there in the first place. Yeah. And part of that, yeah, it is first, I think it kind of comes down to if, if there are three factors that can, that can make, uh, alpha gamer happen, right. Uh, the game design, the gaming group and the gamer itself if you can say like okay we are agreeing to play a game whether or not it has anti-alpha gamer properties or not we are going we have agreed to play this game as it is mm-hmm. okay so whether that be pandemic which like a lot of, which i think is a great game by the way like i keep Fantastic. saying pandemic as the example but just because i think that's kind of the most infamous for it sure for lack of a better word um you know okay so the game is kind of gone. And then let's say that we have a great environment that is happening here. Okay. Mm. And let's say that we have a, hmm, instead of an ego involving climate, which is kind of puts winning and uh, showing off your skills and having these good performances being upfront, we can build a task involving climate, which is just about seeing that everybody is doing their best and uh, improving on themselves and developing their skills. So it's it's not in showing your mastery of the skills, it's just showing that you're getting better. Yeah. So let's say that we build that up as the gaming group and we've built this magic circle. Well, now you have put it the onerous on the only factor that is left, which is the mm-hmm. alpha gamer. Mm-hmm. And now you have this situation of like, okay, we have rules. Are you going to violate those? But then what do you what do you do? But it's at least a step towards the right direction of saying like, okay, we have eliminated two of the factors. And that's kind of sometimes the only thing you can do, which right. kind of is kind of a unhappy solution though, I feel. That's the soft science, hard science thing. Like we don't, we're not going to come to the soft yeah. hard science answer of like how to deal with Alpha Gamer, but at least kind of like distilling down and taking out uh, less fruitful you know, uh, avenues of addressing the problem. So, I mean, this is a personal thing. I mean, I I just don't feel like there are too many games that successfully in their mechanisms deal with the alpha gamer, especially of the, the pandemic style games. 
uh, you're gonna have bossing around. You're gonna have team building. Mm -hmm. You're gonna have opportunities to clash. If you're if you're gonna encourage that kind of collaboration, totally one to one effort, and all the information is kind of like public, or, or most of the important information is public. Uh, the the game is the game to me, and then it's a question of like uh, helping players deal with that and acculturating you know players to that. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, so isolating, you know, the right variable is often the the you know the thing to do. And I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction um, because I think I'm talking a little bit less about the alpha giver, but more about the rules of the game and like being more intentional about establishing the rules of the game. And then that oh, sure, let's the, do it. And then that puts the alpha gamer in a position where they can opt in or out. Right. So it's like, okay. yeah. So, okay. Uh, so you, you set the rules of the game, right. And whatever it is in this table, you, we, we, we tolerate losing. In this table, we we have fun. In this table, we do whatever. Or there's other groups where it's like, okay, we're gonna go, we're gonna go for it, and we'll tolerate a certain level of alpha gaming, but don't touch my piece, right? And so mm -hmm. like we can kind of, and that that's fungible, right? And that 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 can kind of flow in and out. Um, the point being that like a table would do well to kind of like have a sense of that, uh, and especially okay, if it's yeah. the owner of the game, right? If the owner of the game, because usually one person that only either owns the game or running the club or whatever, like they're they set the pace on that and and what kind of table they want to tolerate because it's one product and it's like ten, it tends to be like either one person or one group that's presenting it, so they they get to do it and it's like okay, put it out there and then invite people to check in or out. So it's like if the alpha gamer mm -hmm. is not necessarily a bad thing, it just needs the right context. So it's like okay, not the context for you. Uh, please either adjust your own expectations and find the fun there. Or if you really need to alpha game, then, you know, th there, there might be another table for you, not this one. So yeah, that's hard. If... That's hard. But, and that, and I think like in terms of like, okay, that's a, not a, not a great answer. Well, it's a hard answer, <laughs> you know, and that's, it's a soft science. Like kind of, it takes like, you know, actually learning and, you know, uh, connecting with people type things, which we're not always the best at. But I think if we want to really address it, then I think I think that's the only way to go. I really do. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that. Like, um, you know, what we only call an alpha gamer an alpha gamer. If, if we, and we and we talk about like the game design, we talk about the rules at the table, right? We only we only run into that problem when there's a table of one person being like that, but everybody else doesn't. Right. What right. I mean, what do you, what do you call a table of alpha gamers? You just call it a table <laughs> of gamers because right. they're all agreed to it, right? Thank you. Yes. Yes. Like. That's it. And right. so it's just finding Everybody's the right touching each other's pieces that. and we're all yelling at each other. And it's like, no, you do this. No, you do this. No, you do this. It's just like, okay, well, <laughs> they wanted to be in that kind of game. Let's do it. Right. 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 Mm -hmm. So I think that's an important distinction of, of really setting those rules up front and uh, making sure that every, because at the end of the day, everybody just wants to have fun. Right. There's different concepts of fun. And so everybody should be able to have fun however they can, as long as, you know, they're not ruining other people's fun mm -hmm. and being respectful of it. Right. And in terms of like setting those rules, I think in terms, I've had mo the most success and I've run a bunch of things. I, I take my games all over the place and play. Uh, I'll teach in the library and play. And I've had the most success thinking of it in terms of like violations of personal boundaries. Right. And so it's like, mm -hmm. you know, don't be an alpha gamer it can mean a lot of things with a lot of different people, but respect people's boundaries, respect people's hand of cards, respect people's pawns and respect people's choices, those are matrices where people, those are matrices of, of um, personal space. And so every table mm -hmm. will have a different tolerance for how much of those can be negotiated. But my baseline rule is assume that there's like a, it's very inviolable, people's personal space. And if you have a problem with that, 
because you want to win or because you're motivated by all these things, then that not be, might not be the, the the place for you. I'm not saying that you need to be fixed. <laughs> I'm not saying like you're bad. Not these motivations are neutral at the end of the day uh, and they can just go haywire. But if I truly believe that people's personal space and, and, and like pieces and all that kind of stuff, that needs to be respected more than anything. That's kind of, that's where I come from. And so focusing not necessarily on overall behavior, but just like, okay, do what you do, but then here's the walls. And sure. you figure out as an alpha gamer or as a over-competitive gamer, you know, can you be at this table without crossing these walls? Sure. So, and even having that, um, that sense of uh, knowing thyself, right. In a way and being able to practice in that setting, almost in it, it Sounds like you're making a nice uh, situation, a nice environment that allows people to kind of learn how to do that better and and without so they're not labeled as like a bad guy or anything right, like that. Right. Or, you oh, know, so important. and and we do and we do have to we do have to put it out there that like overwhelmingly it is guys who are doing this. <laughs> but but um yeah, you're right. Um, I think it's like seventy six percent or something like that. But mm -hmm. um. But we're we're not saying like, hey, you're a bad person for doing this. It's just like it's it's a way of improving yourself. It's just another thing that we're doing mm. that is constantly improving yourself a little bit every day. Because if every because I don't think you want to be excluded from tables that will say like, oh, we don't really like, we don't really have that kind of the rules of the table is we're not going to do that. You don't want to have right. to exclude yourself from that because those are possible friends that you could have made along the way. So if you can improve yourself a little bit, being in that situation where it's saying like. Okay, I'm gonna today. I'm gonna learn like to kind of calm myself down a little bit. I'm not gonna be overly competitive today. I'm gonna learn that. That is my goal for today. Right. Mm -hmm. Like everybody can, everybody can improve in that situation. Yeah. And on the other side, I think like having an open ended. Okay, no alpha to this table might not be the best rule because everybody yeah. defines alpha differently and everybody has different thresholds for alpha. Mm -hmm. And it may be that like if it's a group of game, a group of gamers that's new to the game and they're struggling and they, you know, no one wants to lose the game. You know, that's again lost aversion. Uh, and so, if someone has like a helpful way to approach, like, oh, here's this, here's this thing that you can do, um, then that, again, one person's helpfulness is another person's alpha gamer. So by saying no alpha gamer, you, the table might unintentionally be nerfing helpfulness. <laughs> no, I was gonna say. So, like hypothetically, let's say that somebody was going to a meetup tonight. And um, this is hypothetical, of course, and there's no real world implications. Um, and they have a notorious person that is an alpha gamer and keeps being that way for multiple weeks, hypothetically, of course. Um, what would you, what advice would you have for that game group mm. of what to do in this situation? What, what would be the first, what would be the takeaway of really what we talked about today? Right. I mean, I would drill down on what exactly the behaviors they mean. Like there's a whole spectrum of alpha gamer. It's like, okay, what is this person doing? Is this person, um, you know, touching other people's pieces? Is this person, uh, you know, giving demands? Like, you know, people can, like, that's a spectrum too. It's like, okay, are you giving demands or are you giving helpful suggestions or things that you think are helpful suggestions? So like really getting a sense for like, okay, we, we've used this term alpha gamer. That's not the mic drop. That's not the end of the no alpha gamer. I think, okay, that's a term that like indicates a problem. And then maybe this is psychotherapist to me, the, the term, the diagnosis is the beginning of wondering what's going on, not the end. So like, okay, how are they, what is the things that they're doing that indicate alpha gaming? What by what boundaries are they violating? Uh, and, and, and then that's number one. Number two is like, what is the motivation? So like the stuff that you were talking about, the theory of like, you know, 
not everybody's a psychologist, but like, you know, try to figure out like, okay, this person is very quiet at the beginning and then they kind of go into it at the end. That's really helpful. And it's a much different approach than like someone who just turn one, do this. You know, so like breaking all that down, that's why I love this podcast, because we, we, we've we given hopefully people tools to be able to kind of deconstruct the alpha gamer and like diagnose a little bit. And then once you have the shape of what that person's behavior is, then you can kind of design the right intervention. And the sure, right so intervention focusing might... on the behavior, not the person. Right. A little bit. That's, that's a whole that's a that's like a maxim for me. Like I'd never. Like that's why it's difficult. I probably should um, be more careful. I don't want to like use the term alpha gamer as if it's like a thing. Like it's alpha gaming, and then the alpha mm -hmm. gamer as like a, a trope, not as a person, mm -hmm. right? And then as, as as a trope that covers a set of behaviors. So then once I've gotten the shape of that, then I can design my intervention. Be like, okay, this person is underconfident, shy. I love that paradigm, by the way, because it's, it's very kind. Um, so then it's like, okay, well maybe I can kind of let them know. That like it's okay to lose and it's okay to da, da 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 all that stuff right and so then and then okay so all that and at the end of it is like okay most alpha gamers come at it because they don't think it's okay to lose and letting them know it's okay to lose mm -hmm. okay you know? we don't think anything less of you if we, if we lose with you <laughs> we'll get him next time <laughs> yeah exactly all that kind of thing so uh, yeah that, I, I think that's uh, in general how I would. Like I, I, I've yet, I, I don't think I've had the opportunity to kind of like go that deep into it. Cause I don't have like a consistent group that I'm attending, but yeah, I think that if I had to, and hopefully that like people find if they're, if you're you're uh, doing your game group in the audience uh, and you have that problem in your, your area, I think some tools to be able to kind of deal with what kind of alpha gamer, you know, different ways to approach it, et cetera. I think we're good. I hope, I hope, yeah. I think that like that, that's such a great summary of, I think everything we talked about the theories and uh, and really what to, what to do about it because sometimes because every because just at the end of the day it's like i said before it's everybody's trying to have fun playing some games and if you can you know help somebody improve the themselves in a way that they can have more fun with people and the group can have more fun with everybody there then i mean it's a win-win for everybody absolutely great all right well thank you very much eric for uh, and i needed eric for this because i don't write i don't do the theories and i don't have the numbers i i have the observations and i think i'm pretty good at the observations but i don't have that kind of like backing in terms of my own um practice but eric really I, the board game dojo podcast is full of it people it is full of eric you know every re, every episode is researched every episode uh, it's like the one of the only board game podcasts with footnotes <laughs> It does. I have such a long bibliography for everything. It's like a 20 page script because of bibliographies. <laughs> uh, so if you want more of that type of you know analysis, there's many different topics. I mean, uh, one of the early episodes was on uh, FOMO, Fear of Missing Out, which is a very excellent episode. I went back and listened to it. Uh, you know, oh, thank and, you. Again, well-researched and everything. Uh, so like a lot of those different psychological aspects of gaming that you may, maybe we've heard of it, but we don't think about it. But uh, as much like squarely because we're focused on the games, but like we think about it sometimes having a resource like the board game dojo podcast is, has been excellent. So just, uh, you know, one last pitch, tell people about the pod, what you're doing, what's coming up, et cetera. Yeah. So, um, we have just actually recently moved to two podcasts a week. So if you're more interested in kind of the, the gaming side of things, we talk a lot, we will be interviewing some different board game designers and board game illustrators coming up, and those will be on the Monday or Tuesday episodes. Mm -hmm. um, and then the Thursday or Friday episodes are the research episodes. So those those take a long time to uh, research, but 
we've talked about uh, two of the most previous episodes with the sponsored content ones mm -hmm. uh, and the parasocial relationships ones. But we've also talked about FOMO. We've talked about uh, how your personality might choose what games you like or might not like. So that was a really fun one. But we've also talked about the entire history of board games. That was a four-part uh, series mm -hmm. right at the beginning. So the editing is not as great as, as it is now, but but we're just going to keep doing it. And you can always uh, let us know what you want us to cover. We A lot of our episodes have been decided by listeners and viewers. And so we are on Twitter and Instagram. Send us a personal message. We will re we respond to everything that we get. Socials. If you want to hear about something. Socials. Yeah. Uh, we are at Board Game Dojo for Instagram and at the BG Dojo on Twitter. Then we're also on YouTube at the Board Game Dojo, and we are in all of your podcasts uh, apps that you use. Eric Grievous, don't be a stranger. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you so much for having me. It has been a pleasure, and I couldn't have done it without you either. <laughs> That's right. We work together. If you can change your mind, you can change the world, people. So until next time, later, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop. Or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and we'll see you next week for another top five list.